Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. More than 7,000 nurses went on a three-day strike in the largest strike New York City has seen in decades. There were strikes at two major New York City hospitals, Mount Sinai, the main hospital, and Montefiore Medical Center. The strike ended last week. Also today, the importance of the California desert to the ecosystem. Our guests are Erin Hogan, a nurse in the emergency department at Mount Sinai Hospital and a union delegate, and Pat Flanagan, a naturalist educator based in 29 Palms, California. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. President Joe Biden and Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz made coordinated announcements Wednesday. They'll send advanced battle tanks to Ukraine. It follows a months-long pressure campaign directed at both leaders. Eileen Alfandari has more. The decision reverses months of persistent arguments by U.S. officials that the tanks would be too difficult for Ukrainian troops to operate and maintain. But U.S. agreement to send the Abrams was the price for Germany agreeing to send 14 Leopard 2A6 tanks from its own stocks. Norway, Spain, the Netherlands, and Poland also announced they intend to send the German Leopard tanks. France and Britain will send their own tanks. Speaking in a video address on his 45th birthday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky hailed the creation of what he described as a tank coalition. And Zelensky made it clear that Ukraine will push for more advanced weapons, including long-range missiles and aircraft he's believed to be angling for f-16 fighter jets we have to open the supply of long-range missiles to ukraine and it is important that we expand our cooperation in artillery and we have to start supplying aircraft to ukraine this is our dream and our task with an expected springtime russian offensive looming ukrainian commanders said the german tanks will enable ukraine's forces to launch new offensives and curb casualties russia's ambassador to germany called the decision extremely dangerous i'm eileen alfandiri palestinian officials say israeli forces have killed at least nine palestinians including a six year-old woman and wounded several others during a raid in the occupied West Bank Janine refugee camp, marking one of the deadliest days in years in the territory. A gun battle broke out when the Israeli military conducted a rare daytime operation in the camp that it said was meant to prevent an imminent attack against Israelis. The Palestinian Islamic Jihad militant group has a foothold in the camp. It's been a focus of nearly a year of Israeli arrests and raids. Al Jazeera's reporting Palestine's health ministry accusing Israeli forces of using tear gas in a children's hospital ward during the raid and interfering with critical medical care. In the U.S., Democratic lawmakers in the White House are fighting back after Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced he's blocking three Democrats from key House committees. Christopher Martinez reports. The hypocrisy just grabs you by the throat. Representative Adam Schiff is a Democrat from California who served on the House Intelligence Committee until McCarthy. 
the cardinal sin appears to be that I led the impeachment of his master in Mar-a-Lago. McCarthy is also blocking a second Democratic reappointment to the Intel Committee, Eric Swalwell, also of California. This is about an institution where the Speaker of the House is using his power to go after his political opponents and to pick them off the field. Speaker McCarthy, in a Tuesday letter, questioned Schiff and Swalwell's integrity, honesty, and credibility, saying they misused the committee without giving specifics. McCarthy is also threatening the appointment of a third Democrat to another committee. Democrat Ilhan Omar of Minnesota had served on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. It is about revenge. All three of us have been a thorn in the back of the previous disgraced president. Removing Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee would take a vote of the full House of Representatives. That could come next week. For Schiff and Swalwell, Republican leadership can remove members of the Select Committee on Intelligence because it's a select committee with different rules. I'm Christopher Martinez. Vice President Kamala Harris visited Monterey Park Wednesday in the wake of a mass shooting that left 11 people dead and nine wounded. She reiterated calls for gun control. Authorities are still searching for a motive behind the mass shooting, but more details have emerged about the suspected gunman, 72-year-old Hukan Tran. Darna Warder reports. Los Angeles County Sheriff Robert Luna says the 72-year-old suspect had no known connection to the victims. According to witness accounts of witnesses that we've interviewed thus far, we do not believe the suspect has frequented the dance studio in the last five years. At a Wednesday news conference carried by KABC, Luna said investigators did locate a motorcycle a block from the crime scene that was registered to Hukan Tran. Investigators believe it was placed there by the suspect as an alternative getaway vehicle. The sheriff says investigators are not sure how long Tran had been planning the attack. I'm Donna Water. The farm worker, a farm worker accused of fatally shooting seven people in back-to-back shootings in Half Moon Bay, California, was charged with seven counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted-degree murder yesterday with special allegations that could result in the death penalty or life in prison without parole. Governor Gavin Newsom has issued a moratorium on executions in the state. Among those allegations are that Zhao used a gun, caused great bodily injury, and killed multiple people. Memphis police chief is bracing the public for the anticipated release of police body camera footage of the officer killing of Tyree Nichols, whose family attorneys say was beaten like a piñata. Police chief Sarah Davis urged the public not to resort to violence. This incident was heinous, reckless and inhumane. And in the vein of transparency, when the video is released in the coming days, you will see this for yourselves. I expect you to feel outrage in the disregard of basic human rights, as our police officers have taken an oath to do the opposite of what transpired on the video. I expect our citizens to exercise their First Amendment right to protest, to demand action and results. But we need to ensure our community is safe in this process. The five officers involved were fired. 29-year-old Tyree Nichols died after the officers beat him. He was pulled over for a traffic stop and fled. His father has said he ran because he was scared for his life. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. 
And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Any of you who have ever visited a hospital to see a friend or loved one or to go to an ER or yourself have been hospitalized, you understand the importance of nurses to healthcare. Now, it seems as though nurses, not only in the United States, but in other parts of the world, have had enough. They want better patient care. They want a better uh, ratio for the amount of patients they are expected to care for. Um, As I said earlier, more than 7,000 nurses went on a three-day strike and the largest strike New York has seen in decades at two major New York City hospitals, Mount Sinai, Uh, was the main hospital and Montefiore Medical Center. That strike has ended. The nurses were demanding salary increases and improved staffing levels. Meanwhile, nurses at McLaren Central Michigan in Mount Pleasant and my Michigan Alma are expected to vote this week on an authorization to strike. They've been working without a contract since November. Additionally, nurses have hit the picket lines or gone on strike in California and Oregon and Minnesota. Indeed, in Minnesota, 15,000 nurses went on strike, the largest in private nurses uh, strike history. The New York Times reports that this month, thousands of healthcare workers in the U.S. are protesting understaffing at HCA Healthcare, which is the largest hospital system in the United States. The New York Times also reports that tracking by the Bureau of Labor Statistics found that in 2022, nurses led a quarter of the top 20 major work stoppages. Meanwhile, 100,000 nurses have quit during 2020 and 2021. In December, 400 SEIU nurses went on strike in Southern California, specifically at Cedar sinai Marina del Rey. Over the next few years, the nursing shortage in the United States is predicted to be in the hundreds of thousands. Let's go to a clip now of uh, nurses in Michigan uh, sharing that clip with you because it is really typical of uh, demands nurses are making. Let's go to that clip now. In our top story tonight, nurses at two area hospitals a little closer to the possibility of going on strike after failed negotiations. Nurses at McLaren Central Michigan in Mount Pleasant and my Michigan in Alma are expected to vote this week on a strike. They've been working without a contract since November. 910's Jody Meeson has more in our top story at 7. I love my job. I love what I do. And I'm really disheartened that we haven't been able to make more progress. Blair Showers is an ER nurse with My Michigan Alma. She says she's worked there for the past three years. She says they just want fair and competitive wages to keep staff and patients safe. There's been a lot of other nursing contracts around the state that have done just that. And um, they've been able to keep new staff. Jessica Herodine, a pre-op nurse from McLaren Central and also the president of the My Michigan Alma Union local says nurses are leaving everywhere. A lot of nurses are just uh, fed up with the way that they've been treated by their organizations and the lack of help when it comes to staffing. 
and working short. Shower says the nurses feel they have no choice but to vote to authorize a strike. We have done months of negotiating with my Michigan, and they just have not really budged on what their proposal is from the start of our contract negotiations to now. And we feel that this is the only way to get them to listen to us. My Michigan Alma says we were surprised to hear of the vote to strike following our most recent negotiations this past Friday. We know our nurses, and they are exhausted from these past few years. The sacrifices they made through the COVID-19 pandemic are the ones they are still recovering from today. McLaren Central says it is unfortunate that the MNARNs decided to take a strike vote at McLaren Central, Michigan, intending to take nurses away from patient care to strike for wages. This is an unconscionable attempt by select union representatives to use the pandemic as leverage at the bargaining table. My Michigan Alma nurses hold their strike authorization vote on Wednesday. McLaren Central Michigan holds theirs on Thursday. In Mount Pleasant, Jody Meeson. All righty. So also abroad in Europe, in particular, tens of thousands of nurses in England, for example, walked off work striking amid a chronic shortage of healthcare staff and ballooning living costs. The common denominator in all of these nurse strikes is that the pandemic has heightened existing chronic working conditions like the patient nurse ratio. But nurses are not the only ones walking out. In the UK and Britain, they're facing several public sector strikes with teachers, train drivers, postal workers, and even driving test examiners all voting for industrial action. And this um, reminds us of the strike-filled 1970s and 1980s. We'll see if uh, similar actions play out in the United States and across France. As of Wednesday, January 25th, a coalition of major labor unions are continuing a series of strikes and associated protests with major industrial action planned later this month on January 31st. Now, strikers across several industries in France, including train drivers, air traffic controllers, and airport staff, denounce recently proposed pension reforms that would raise the retirement age. So you have uh, workers in, in wage work, in nursing, but also across a number of other industries taking action. But we are going to focus right now on what happened in New York City and to hear a bit more about the working conditions of nurses and why militant action is needed. I'd like to welcome our guest, Erin Hogan. She is a nurse in the emergency department at Mount Sinai Hospital. She is also a union delegate and she was on the strike action committee and now on the staffing committee for the emergency department. Erin, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Erin, I read somewhere that nurses say that they take home guilt while the CEOs of these hospitals are taking home millions. Even in that clip, there was some reference of nurses leaving patient care to go out on strike. Tell us about that, the kind of calculations that one has to make in deciding to take strike action. Erin. Right. So this was this was a long time coming. I will say that first. Working in the ER, 
I would have sometimes 17 to 20 patients. They would just keep coming and coming. And, you know, the patients in this ER uh, at Mount Sinai Hospital are on top of each other. You're literally, you know, trying to squeeze in between two stretchers to get an IV in. It's completely unsafe. And, of course, as a nurse, it's very, very stressful. It causes a very dangerous environment for everybody that's there. Um, And for years before the pandemic, even, we would go to management day after day after day voicing our concerns and how this wasn't right and we needed more nurses and it really just fell on deaf ears as much as we protested they would push back and say you know in the er specifically it's a unique area of the hospital that there was no ratios for us that this was just what it is and we just had to accept it and yeah of course we would take home gill many of us anxiety panic attacks are very normal for us unfortunately it's become a bit normalized Um, You go home waking up in the middle of the night thinking about that patient and whether you remembered to give a medication and how they were doing. It's just simply, it's not right. Yeah, I I read also that in, I can't remember what state it was, that a nurse actually, an ER nurse checked herself into the ER after her shift because the, the the work was so demanding and the impact, uh, it clearly impacted uh, her health. So I hear what you're saying. Uh, now, Aaron, uh, you know, it also was reported that particularly during the COVID pandemic, that hospitals actually were making money, okay? And you have these CEOs that are making millions of dollars, but yet as an ER nurse, when you go to say, we need help, they're pushing back and saying, what are they saying? They, they can't hire any more nurses. They don't have the funding to do it. I mean, what's the excuse uh, you all are being given, Aaron? All of the above, honestly. Um, I know that in particular in my ER, they've said things like, oh, we have filled almost all of our vacancies, which is a complete lie. To be honest with you, the nurses that I work with now are almost entirely different than a year ago. They've all moved on to other units. Um, and the, yeah, the hospitals absolutely have the money. They just don't want to do anything about it. Right. So it's really, really about profit. And the, the thing that I find interesting is that uh, the strikes in New York, well, first I should ask you, what, what were the, the demands of the strike that you were particularly involved in? Above all, it is really about the staffing. That's really what it's about. Um, a lot of people said, you know, even if we got a massive, like 25% raise, it wouldn't matter if it wasn't going to change what our staffing and what are the patient care that we can provide. That was really what it was about. Right. Well, you know, I, I found that interesting because it's not only about your working conditions. Remember, you talk about staffing. It's about your working conditions and the stress that you're facing, exhaustion that you're facing. Clearly, that's the case. But also patient care. I mean, I spent quite a bit of time. I think I was in hospital for like five weeks, some years back with some issues with my lungs. And I can't tell you how important it was if a nurse even had a few minutes with me to, you know, to say something uh, cheery. I remember there was a nurse that would make these little paper 
um, uh, you know, birds, right? And you know, he would do it very, very quickly. And that made such a huge difference for me. So it seems to me as though you all are complaining not only about your workload, but what that means for the impact on patient care. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, about this ratio as it impacts patient care, Erin um, Hogan. Absolutely. So, um, of course, you know, you have to think about it in other professions that when your workload, when they put more on more work or double your workload or add more tasks, that's obviously going to make it more stressful and you're going to uh, not do as great a job because you're stretched in. And it's exactly the same thing in the hospital, um, not just in the ER, in all of the units, it's just different in other units. Um, so instead of, you know, I'm glad you, you told me that story because for me, and I think all nurses, but for me, it's really all been about having that personal connection with a patient, you know, to really be able to check in and see how you were doing to just have that moment. And it's impossible. It is literally impossible especially in the ER. Now I will say that I started out in oncology and I started at Mount Sinai six years ago. And within a month into orientation, I noticed something wasn't right because I thought that out of all of the units that somewhere like oncology, surely <laughs> they would, you know, make sure that there's enough staffing. So you have enough time to provide this personal connection. Now moving on from that. So there wasn't right. First of all, but moving on from that in the ER, forget about it. You're really just chasing your tail, running around in circles, trying to complete orders. You're lucky if you'll be able to take a minute with them and chat with them and really see how you're doing. But unfortunately, this is the reality that we have been forced to be in despite our protests. So medications can be given late. Patients will be screaming that they need something or upset that they need something. And you might not be able to get there. You might just have to walk past them to get to the patient that is in critical need of care at that moment. That is such a heartbreak, um, and uh, Aaron and uh, Kathy Kennedy, who's the president of the California Nurses Association, they represent, by the way, 100,000 nurses across California. She said, quote, we are seeing an upsurge of nurses that are saying, we've had enough. We want to organize. We really want our hospital to hear what we have to say, end of quote. So with the strike that you were involved in, 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 in New York city, did the hospital listen to what here and listen to what you had to say? Um, the strike has ended. What did you win from that strike action? So this actually was a really good win. So in addition to retiree benefits, healthcare, those are considered little things in the, in the scheme of all of it. Um, we did get our raise that we had asked for over three years but we also won enforceable patient ratio. So what that means is that, you know, there's been these staffing committees that have been around for a while, but in the, now they're really important, right? Because in the past, we couldn't really enforce anything. Well, we just couldn't. They just went on deaf ears. Um, so unit by unit, these staffing committees have put together ratios. Now, what will happen is these staffing committees will collect data every day, every shift, and we'll see when we are short according to those ratios. What we will do with that is we collect this data and then it will go to arbitration and the arbitrator will be up to them. But um, 
basically if they vote in our favor, then the hospital would have to pay a fine. And the fine, interestingly, because I don't believe this has happened anywhere in the U.S. or in the world, that fine will go to the nurses that were actually working short. Right. Okay. Um, so quite quite a bit uh, that you've you've won there. Uh, so one other thing, though, because we know in the hospital, you know, of course, there's the hierarchy. You know, you have the doctors and you have the registered nurses. You have what, at least in California, are called the LVNs, right? And then you have the health uh, care technicians, the dietitians, the nursing assistants, etc. And they obviously earn less, right? So what is the impact of the fact that um, they also are understaffed? I mean, it seems to me as though there's a ripple effect, isn't there, with if they're understaffed uh, on your workload as a, as a nurse? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, I do. And you're absolutely right. Um, I will say that coming back to work after the strike, uh, with all of these other areas and especially our taxi we love so much, you know, we are welcomed back with open arms and they work hard too. And they're unionized as well. Um, they're in a different union. They're 1199 at my hospital. Um, if we have, you know, nurses, we, we work hard, you know? Um, so if we actually have these, when we actually have these ratios, because I will say side note that it, it will be a fight. <laughs> um, we're always happy to help out our tax. And especially if we have ratios in place, then we will be able to help out even more. In the past, this has been part of the problem was, you know, we're short in all aspects. So you're doing a tech's work as well as a nurse's work. And we're happy to do that. But we definitely didn't have the time. Now, with these ratios being more enforceable, we'll be able to have the time. And hopefully this will. And I think it already has started to mobilize Um other healthcare workers across the country. And that includes, you know, the tax and LPNs and anybody else that's unionized in healthcare so they can fight for what they deserve as well, because we're all a team. We can't do it without each other. Right. And um, just, we just have a few minutes left, but um, you know, some of the hospital administrators are saying, well, nurses are just using the, the coronavirus, the pandemic, as an excuse uh, to really push hard at the bargaining table. And I wonder your response to that. And also it was clear during the pandemic, there was a time that people, I remember in New York, people would be applauding, you know, nurses and applauding the ambulance drivers, et cetera. And then that, that kind of shifted a bit. And, you know, some healthcare workers actually started being attacked you know, rather than uh, being thanked, given all of the politics around the vaccine, et cetera. But just tell us your response about this business, about the the, uh, pandemic, because then you also have this winter, an uptick of this RSV, particularly um, among children and other respiratory um, issues. So it just seemed to me as though all of that just added on uh, to the workload and stress of nurses and other healthcare workers, Erin. Yeah, um, <laughs> that makes me sad and angry <laughs> to hear about uh, administrators saying that we're using the pandemic as an excuse. I'm not surprised that they're saying that. But like I said, this has been a problem way before the pandemic. The pandemic only exacerbated it. I mean, 
I don't want to go into the grim stories of the pandemic, but you know, I'm sure that you know how the hospitals looked and how it was for nurses, especially in the ER, which was actually when I first started there. Um, but since then, it's only just gotten worse and worse. And in terms of, you know, personally and the emotional state of nurses, yeah, we're very, very burnt out and the pandemic exacerbated that. We're exhausted. We're suffering from nightmares. I mean, I talked to a nurse that um, has since left, but on the picket lines, and she was telling me about the crippling anxiety that she's been having since COVID uh, related to that. Right. And no wonder then that nurses, it seems, are leaving in droves. I mean, according to the New York Times, nurses are quitting their full-time jobs. They are um, doing the whole uh, traveling uh, nurse. Um, Some people are getting into demand for travel nurses, they're saying, has uh, doubled. Uh, But also that By 2025, the U.S. is projected to have somewhere between 200,000 and 450,000 nurses that they are short of. Uh, So they better listen up and and make some changes here. Any final thoughts uh, from you and uh, people who also want to support the work that you all are doing, the union is doing and the nurses, is there anything that they should do? Erin Hogan. Thank you. Uh, I have a lot to say to that. So feel free if you need to cut me off. Um, So in regards to travel nursing and leaving, I am actually an example of that. I love what I do. I love my coworkers. I love my patients, but it just became too much. And so I went down to part-time in the ER and I did do traveling for a while. And it was honestly the most, uh, honestly, it felt like I got out of an abusive relationship. It really did. It's like you're in it and it's normalized and you're looking around and you're asking everybody else like, wait, 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 but this isn't right. But everybody else is just kind of silently accepting it. And then you finally get out, you know, you think you're crazy and then you get out and you're like, oh my God. (laughs) Um, So being part-time is much better. Um, And what was the other thing in regards to support? I mean, this is so important, our allies. And I would say write to our officials, um, encourage and demand safe staffing ratios for us because we all deserve it, patients and nurses. And, you know, if there's another strike in your area, please support us or them on the picket line. Thank you. Right. Right. And when you are in the ER and and hospital, uh, just remember, you know, we are so dependent on nurses. And I actually found that I could depend or get more information from nurses uh, than I could from some of the higher ups, from some of the doctors on uh, on staff there. Well, Erin, thank you so much for your work. Erin Hogan, nurse in the emergency department at Mount Sinai Hospital. She's a union delegate. She was part of the strike action committee there and now on the staffing committee for the emergency department. Thank you so very much for your work. And uh, we really want to get, give a shout out to all of the nurses and, and healthcare workers. Uh, we really appreciate each and every one of you. And Erin, please keep us posted on how things progress following your action. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. We are going to take a short station break. And then coming up, what is the importance of the California desert 
to the entire ecosystem. When people think of a desert, they think, oh, it's just a bunch of sand out there and it, it, it really is just there to be exploited and it really doesn't contribute anything. Is that actually the case? And uh, we'll be talking with Pat Flanagan, a naturalist educator who's based in 29 Palms, California. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Just to make it quick Pull my tent to the sick Cause there must be something she can do This heart is broken in two Tell her it's a case of emergency Alrighty, and that is Night Nurse by Gregory Isaacs. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you are a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Just look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners who are healthcare workers anywhere they are in the United States. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners who are nurses right now taking action in the UK. Uh, This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Now, the deserts of California, they do have a unique and extremely valuable ecosystem and also habitats, as well as a collection of historic districts and communities. Um, They are three main deserts in California, the Mojave Desert, the Colorado Desert, and the Great Basin uh, Desert. Of course, for those of you in, in Southern California, I know Joshua Tree National Park is a popular destination and increasingly internationally and even internationally, it's become a major destination point. I understand that last year there was something like 3 million visitors uh, to Joshua Tree um, National Park. Um, now, unfortunately, there are a lot of environmental protection problems in relation to the desert, the impact of of climate change, um, increased threats to conservation and preservation in the desert. It's estimated that California has $10.8 million uh, acres of desert, and it's home to diverse life from desert tortoises to bighorn uh, sheep. Also, Native American artifacts are found in the California desert, but protecting the desert is a challenge as the desert faces threats from renewable energy uh, products, infrastructure to support tourism, large solar projects that damage the local environment and habitat, also drought, even ravens that are now a threat. As intelligent as many people love ravens, they are a predator of the desert tortoise, particularly the baby desert uh, tortoise. And by the way, experts have found that the creosote bush, which is abundant in the California desert, 
Who knew? It's one of the oldest organisms on the planet, we're being told. We're now going to hear, before we welcome our guests, we're going to hear a clip about the uh the Mojave Desert tortoise, which was listed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as threatened under the Endangered Species Act in 1990. And now there's some who are pushing to elevate the tortoise status from threatened to endangered. Let's go to that clip right now. Decades ago, the Bass Mojave Desert was home to hundreds of tortoises per square mile. Today, tortoise populations have fallen to two to three adults per square mile. You know, people definitely contributed very, very largely to their decline. We're really in an all-hands-on-deck situation with protection of the desert tortoise. If we don't change what we're doing, it's very likely that the tortoise will be extinct by the end of the century. Conservation groups fear the western Mojave desert tortoise is headed for extinction. They're urging the California Fish and Game Commission to elevate its status from threatened to an endangered species. Three, two, one. Ravens are omnivores, they eat everything. If we don't do some active management of ravens, we won't have tortoises. This species is under siege from development, from climate change, from wildfires, from military maneuvers, from respiratory disease, and oh yes, we can't forget ravens. Do you remember a time when there were more tortoises than the ones we're trying to find out here this morning? It was much easier to see them. I mean, just going through Mojave National Preserve, you'd see one every couple of days, even if you're just driving around. I understand that they're at the limits of tolerance for temperature-wise. Have you noticed any diminishment of tortoise populations due to drought? Absolutely. The, uh, they are well adapted to the desert, but uh, they are getting closer to their physiological limits. There's less rainfall, less food, and, uh, you know, less reproduction. Gopherus agassizai was listed as threatened over 30 years ago under a powerful piece of legislation that was among the first of its kind. In 1970, California helped lead the way when it enacted the California Endangered Species Act. The federal government followed suit three years later, improving the odds of rescuing wildlife dangling from the edge. Each of us all across this great land has a stake in maintaining and improving environmental quality. Despite the fact that tortoises are protected by federal and state laws in California, and actually by federal and state laws in Nevada as well, people are still building huge projects on tortoise habitat. Tortoises have lived in the Mojave Desert for millions of years, even before the area was a desert. It's almost as close to a dinosaur as you can get uh, in Southern California. The California Fish and Game Commission is set to make a decision later this year about whether to change the tortoise's status from threatened to endangered. Regardless of the outcome, it's clear to some that keeping desert tortoises alive isn't just the job of the select few. It really needs to be every Californian, every Nevadan working to make sure the tortoises have a shot at getting into the 22nd century. 
All righty. Uh, there you go. And uh, I have a soft spot, I'll have to say, for uh, desert uh, tortoises. I would now like to welcome uh, Pat Flanagan to discuss not only uh, the threat to the tortoise and the importance, but actually the importance of the whole ecosystem in the desert. Pat Flanagan is a naturalist educator. She's based in 29 Palms, California. She developed the first place-based desert ecology geology curriculum in Southern California, the Salton Basin Living Laboratory Field Trip Program, as well as the Ecosystem Map Graphic Organizer. She is currently a desert naturalist at the 29 Palms Inn uh, on the Oasis of Mata. She educates an international audience on the local history going back 9,000 years and desert ecology. Pat, welcome back to Sojourner Truth. Well, thank you very much for having me. Okay, Pat, um, there are a number of things I'd like to discuss with you, but uh, right now you heard the clip on the Desert Tortoise, the Desert Tortoise Council and the Desert Tortoise Preserve Committee. They've petitioned California Fish and Game Commission to elevate tortoise stash status from threatened to endangered. And the LA Times had an article uh, recently that just broke my heart. The headline was, can, um, can California's Endangered Species Act save the Mojave Desert Tortoise? And people are worried that they're going extinct. Uh, Pat Flanagan, your thoughts? Well, um, I know that where I live, that uh, I have for the first time in years, seen a desert tortoise recently that's come to visit me. It's now underground for the winter time, but it came in and um, was eating my cactus. So I hope that gave it both calories and water. Um, but one of the biggest problems also that we have is I live on private land. If I was going to do any kind of building, then I would not have to get the same kind of permits that you have to have if you're going to be doing any kind of a work on Bureau of Land Management land, for instance, but the uh, Department of the U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife Service is now developing a general conservation plan for desert tortoise in California, and uh, it will include private land and um, the area that I live in in the Morongo Basin and around Joshua Tree National Park. The area that is north of the park is included in this. Plan, conservation plan. So that'll be excellent when it is uh, finalized. Right. And, uh, and Pat, I mean, the idea that the desert tortoise was around even before this place was a desert, millions of millions of years old and now uh, considered uh, threatened is just a heartbreak. But uh, Pat, there's also the whole of the ecological balance uh, in the desert. Tell us a bit about what you know about, um, about that. I mean, the importance of the California uh, desert, not only for carbon sequestration, but also generally just for biodiversity. Pat Flanagan. So, so okay, biodiversity. Um, in the many hundreds of people that I've talked to from all over the world, I usually start out asking, well, how many People think the desert is a place with nothing going on except sand dunes. And frequently the answer is I get a raised hand saying them. However, since the deserts of California make up 27% of the state, they actually have 
38% of the native plants within the state. And the state is a biodiversity hotspot in the world. So I think you go, what? How can that be? You know, and getting that around your head, the, the three deserts that you talked about, the Sonoran Colorado to the south of us, the Mojave, the Great Basin Desert, uh, they all have a different ecology, as a matter of fact. The Sonoran takes uh, gets two rainy seasons a year. The Mojave one, the Great Basin, relies more on snow. So they're climatologically, topographically, and geologically very diverse, which is what helps us to be a place where evolution can take place. So um, we have 2,450 plus native plants. How does that how does that fit in your mind, Margaret? <laughs> really? Absolutely. And you know, Pat, the, the thing is, I mean, people are listening to this show in Southern California, but other uh, parts of, of the country may be wondering, well, why the heck should we care about protecting the desert? I mean, what's what's so important uh, about about this. You talked about 2,450 native plants. I mentioned the creosote, um, which is considered one of the oldest organisms. I, I read that somewhere. I'm, I'm not, uh, I only saw it in, in one place, but I do know there is one uh, creosote bush um, in the desert, California desert, that's said to be some 10,000 years old, something like that. But why what what is the importance? I mean, given the climate crisis that we are in right now, and a lot of focus on defending. Uh, last week, this week, actually, we did uh, some shows on um, forest defenders and protecting the forest, not only here in the United States, stopping genetically engineered trees and and much more, right? And people also focus on the importance of stopping fossil fuels, but people generally don't think about protecting the desert as uh, an environmental necessity, um, given the whole ecological uh, balance. Uh, Pat Flanagan, any thoughts on that? Well, um, yes, because although we don't see any big trees sequestering carbon above ground, were you to go look underground, you would see that the plants, all those creosote that you think about, those creosote are connected underground by mycorrhizal fungi. And as the creosote and other species of plant are photosynthesizing, they're bringing carbon dioxide underground and releasing it and, and storing it underground. But over long periods of time, that storage goes deeper and deeper and it becomes a rock called caliche. And that, uh, the deeper caliche that we have, that's Pleistocene, Ice Age carbon. So 10% of the carbon in California that is so important is stored in the desert. And it can stay that way if you don't disturb the desert, if you don't put in the utility scale solar, because you're going to have to be sinking pilings, for instance, which will break up. You have First of all, you're going to scrape the plants away. But then also the pilings are going to break up the caliche. You're going to be releasing carbon. You do not find the amount of carbon released being studied, which is unfortunate. So, yes, the desert has the most, the largest undisturbed ecosystem in the world. And if what? you just leave it alone. Yeah. You didn't know that, did you? Did you know? No. That? No. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's Could the largest. Could you repeat that, Pat? 
the okay the california desert is the largest intact ecosystem in the continental united states and then excuse me not the world but then it gets to the gets to be a major factor in the world as well so in the united states the desert is it and if you leave it alone you can um do very well one of the interesting things is there was a study done by the national park service that was looking at parks throughout the United States to see how they sequestered carbon. Number one was Great Smoky Mountain. Is that a surprise? No. But what was a surprise is that Death Valley and Joshua Tree National Park and the Mojave Preserve are within the top 10 parks with the highest annual net ecosystem carbon balance. Huh? But it's because we have so much land that is just left as it is. It is not being disturbed within the protected areas. And now we need to be protecting also private lands as well. Right. And, you know, Pat, that just makes me think of uh, not only what I've learned about the tribes, the nations who have uh, lived in this desert and with this desert, including in, in the area now known as, quote unquote, Death Valley, you know, think of the images that that raises. But also um, when I traveled in, in Australia in Aboriginal territory and the importance that is placed on the land and just leaving the land alone, right? And not disturbing the land and the value uh, of that. You know, what you're saying about the, the desert and it's true, I didn't know, the largest intact ecosystem in the United States. And, and Pat, there's something else, another reason why so many people uh, love the desert, love to uh, visit the desert, and that has to do with dark skies. I was reading somewhere that light pollution has now shown in both urban and rural areas to be detrimental uh, to the health of people, and it also disturbs the critters that live in, in that environment who are very, very uh, dependent, their habits and their culture, so to speak, uh, very dependent on uh, dark skies. Uh, Pat Flanagan, your thoughts? Well, um, yes, if many, because of the weather, for one thing, many of the desert animals are out there hunting at night. And if they cannot move across the desert hunting for food, or, or hunting, the hunting for food can be those that are vegetarians and those that are carnivores. Um, they need to have the dark sky because that's the way their eyes are adjusted. If you have a lot of light, you also let the carnivores see the animals as what well, more easily. So they're, they're predated on higher. It's, um, it's complex. Just think about all of a sudden, if we depend upon the dark sky for getting some sleep, what if we didn't have it anymore? Well, sort of flip that around. And if we depend upon the dark sky for moving around and getting our stuff, um, then the light is not good for us. Right. And, and Pat, I remember, the, in fact, the, my first visit actually to the California desert, I wanted my daughter, who was a, a young thing at the time, uh, to be able to see the night sky. I had taken her to the planetarium and um, I think in Wilson, uh, you know, in, in Griffith Park in Los Angeles. And she was utterly blown away looking at the stars. And I thought, oh, my God, this kid grew up in East L.A. in an urban environment. I grew up in Barbados in a small village. So I had an idea 
of what a night sky looked like and brought her out here um, to so she would get a look at, at the night sky. And I'm glad to say she's now um, a, a scientist. She's a physicist. And one of the things, the point she makes is that every child should have an opportunity to see the night sky, that it should be our right, <laughs> which I totally um, agree with, uh, Pat. Um, right. Yeah, but setting, you know, the, so we have the protecting the, the desert tortoise, uh, protecting the dark skies. Now, there is a bit of a conflict going on with people who want a green ecology. Ecology. They need things like lithium batteries. There are these huge uh, solar farms that are propping up in the desert. There are already, I think, 24 solar energy facilities in the Mojave Desert alone, and more than 15 have been approved to be developed. What's the problem? What's the clash going on here, Pat? Well, years, years ago, the... Um United States Environmental Protection Agency developed lists of disturbed areas on which utility scale solar could be built. Those areas are not being uh, looked at so carefully. Instead, um, developers want to use flatland that is more easily accessible and they may not have to pay taxes on, they may not have to pay BLM for it. And then they have to do a long transmission line to get the which also goes across uh, the San Andreas Fault and the fire zone to get to LA and other areas where the energy is gonna be used. Um, there's a development, there's a Daggett Solar up in Newberry Springs, which is on 3000 acres. And half of that was put on our uh, agricultural land that was no longer being used because there wasn't enough water. Good. The other half, is on pristine desert land. And we actually know how to date the age of the creosote clones. And that's how you tell the, the, the creosotes begin to grow outward from their initial mother plant. And that you can date uh, the age of the creosote by knowing the, the radius. However, um, so I was looking at that project and dating the creosote clones using Google Earth, and there were some that were 4,000 years old. How much carbon is being sequestered under there? It is going to be released. Never mind the fact that these flatlands are also on what's called sand transport paths. So when you take the vegetation off, the wind is blowing in the spring and other times of the year, and the dust is horrible. And for people with lung problems, it's a disaster. Right. And, and Pat, I'm, I'm looking at, at the clock. There never seems to be enough time, Pat uh, Flanagan, to speak with you. One of the things that we may have to tackle when you come back, and I hope you will, is the Salton Sea is now said to have the largest lithium deposits in the world. And we know that lithium is very much in demand for electric cars. Of course, the Salton Sea out here in the uh, California desert. So in addition to the, the solar farms uh, that must be disturbing um, life in the desert, now we will have possible large-scale mining operations happening uh, for lithium. But um, 
Pat Flanagan, I'm afraid we, we are going to have to leave it there. But Pat, you're active with a group in California, the, in Morongo Basin, um, having to do with protecting the environment. Um, what is the name of that, that group? And is there a website if people can Google and, and get involved and, and support those efforts? It's the, yes, it's the Morongo Basin Conservation Association. It is 53 years running. And the... Uh, Website is mbconservation.org or just Google Morongo Basin Conservation Organization and you will find out a whole bunch. Right. And well, you'll Pat, be able to help. Well, thank you so much for your work, uh, Pat Flanagan, and we hope to speak with you again. Thank you for joining us. And thank you. All righty, we are out of time. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank all of today's guests. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, our board up, uh, Gary Baca. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Um, our weekly roundtable will be back tomorrow with our regular panelists. You won't want to miss that. Uh, Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.